Cherish and I um, owned our first house, and ever since, we've had this recurring problem, all right? And now I know where your mind may be going. This is not about our air conditioner, all right? So uh, we've had this recurring problem, and it's bird's nests, all right? We have this recurring problem of bird's nests. In both of our houses that Cherish and I have owned, we've had birds that have tried to build nests every single spring right next to our front door, all right? So the house that we owned back in Louisville, um, we had our mailbox that was right to the left of it. As you walked in, there was like this black mailbox. And every spring, spring, we had this bird that would try to come build its nest right on top of the mailbox. And it was no, like to the very like, like time of year, every single time this bird would, would come back, try to build this nest. We moved to St. Louis. It's like, okay, we got rid of this. But then we bought our house. And guess what? We have a bird that tries to build its nest on our front porch right by our door, all right? So we have this little perch on either side of our, our, our front porch where the brick columns go up. There's this little piece. You can, I, I think I have a picture of it so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Um, there's this little perch on top of the, there it is, see? You can see like the dirt that's around it from where the bird tries to build its stupid nest. And so every single spring, like this bird comes back, tries to build its nest, tries to bring the grass, tries to bring the hay, tries to bring the dirt and build this nest right on that perch every single spring. And so naturally, like we have to do something to deal with it, right? We have to do something to figure out how we get this nest from happening every single summer or every single spring because look, it, it never works to... Like the, the tea, every time that the bird tries to do this, it, it doesn't, the nest doesn't work. It's not a big enough space, and so it leaves this big mess. It's also terrifying every single time that we try to, like, go out the front door. The bird is there, and it, like, takes off, and it just, like, makes your heart flutter, you know? And so it's just terrifying. And we got to get to the root of this. And so um, to take away the temptation, we try to figure out how do we do this? Well, we go to scare tactics, right? We go to scare tactics. Now, I'm not talking about like we jump out the door and try to scare it. We try to find, go into our house, try to find something that we can place on that perch that will scare the bird away. And here's what we go to, all right? A minion. This is, the, this is the Wilson scarecrow. So back in Louisville, we place this on top of our mailbox. I, the, the post office probably had to think we were crazy, that we have this like little minion that's on top of our mailbox. We did it here as well. We have one on either side. We try to take it down before people come over to our house so you don't think we're idiots, but we have that up on there. So instead of us getting terrified, the bird flies around and it, it's so, so fun to watch it like fly away. It's terrified by the little minion, right? It's our, it works like a charm. It, it's helped with this temptation for birds to build its nest, even though it's been this recurring problem. Well, tonight we're looking at a passage. Look at the segue. This is great, all right? This is great preaching. We're looking at a passage where Abraham has a recurring problem in his life, right? It's just so seamless, right? So beautiful. So here's, here's Abraham's recurring problem, all right? He has a problem of calling Sarah, who his, is his wife, his sister, <laughs> Like, what a weird problem to have, right? Like, what in the world? Like, it's just weird enough that it actually is intriguing, right? You're fascinated. Like, what is going on with Abraham? Why these stories? What's going on in this passage that Abraham keeps calling Sarai or Sarah 
his wife. It's the second time that he, he has done this. In Genesis chapter 12, we see the first account. In Genesis 20, we see the second account. So I made a chart for you so we can compare and contrast. So it's going to show up on the screen here in a second. All right. So here's what happens in both. There's comparisons. There's similarities that happen in both. So Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's received the promise from God. At the very end of the chapter, we see that Abraham picks up his camp they travel to Egypt where they're, because there's a great famine. Well, the same thing is happening here in Genesis chapter 12. Sodom and Gomorrah has just happened. Abraham picks up his camp and they begin to travel to Gerar. Then you see, as they enter into these two places, Abraham does the same thing. He has this recurring problem of calling Sarah his wife. And so as they enter into Egypt, Pharaoh takes Sarah as his wife because of her beauty. We see the exact same thing that happens in Genesis 20 with Abimelech. Then as these kings take Sarah in, we see that there's something that happens with affliction in their own homes. Pharaoh gets afflicted with severe plagues that happen throughout his entire household. We see the same thing happen here in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech. What we saw at the very end where Carol is reading for us is that God's closed up the womb of all the women in Abimelech's home. There's affliction that happens. And the response that happens because of the way that God intervenes in the Pharaoh's life and Abimelech's life and the ultimately in Abraham's life as we see blessing that happens. Pharaoh gives Sarai back to Abraham with many gifts and then we see the same thing that happens in Genesis 20. Abimelech gives Sarah back with gifts and more. He gets to settle in the land, all right? So this begs a question. Like, why is this story retold throughout the book of Genesis. What does this have to do with anything? What's going on here? Why does Moses include it as he's the author of Genesis? Well, I, I, there's at least two reasons, all right? One, we see the Bible continue to bring up our human struggle with sin. We have this human struggle with ongoing sin in our life. And this story should cause us to pause and consider what are the reoccurring sin patterns in our own life. All right. So I get it. Like I was wrestling with it this past week. You may be feeling this as you're sitting in your seat tonight that we've been talking a lot about sin. Right. I mean, we're only 20 chapters in, and it feels like every single week there's just this recounting of struggle with sin in our life. And look, I'm just trying to preach through the Bible, right? I'm just trying to preach through the book of Genesis and bring to you what it brings to us. That's all I'm trying to do. But look, what we also need to see by this recurring account of wrestling with the struggle of sin, we need to see that the Bible is making it abundantly clear to us that our greatest issue in life is sin. Our greatest issue, the thing that we struggle with, the thing that causes the most threat to our life in our our daily walk here in this world is sin. Look, it's not your finances. It's not the direction of your life, where your career is headed, if you're in the right profession. That's not it. It's not if you are finding your spouse or your significant other and you're trying to date around and find the golden unicorn that's out there. These aren't your biggest issues. Your biggest issue in this life is sin. And what the Bible is telling us by the recurring accounts of the wrestle with the struggle of sin is that we must Deal with it. We must deal with it in our life. But 
Beyond that, as we wrestle with sin, what we also see by these recurring accounts is that the Bible is equally honest with us about God's commitment to us. That's what we continue to see over and over again, that God is completely committed to us. The Bible regularly reveals God's faithfulness to us as his people, especially not just whenever we're doing well, but especially when we're unfaithful to him. As we continue to look throughout the book of Genesis and we see failed account over and over again, what we continue to see is God's unwavering faithfulness to his people, which includes us. And this is just another story another instance of how God is faithful to his people, all right? So here's what we're gonna do tonight as we look throughout this passage, all right? First, I want us to just look at the finer details of the story so we can deal with the recurring sin in our own life. What we see here is a robust account, much more so than actually the Genesis chapter 12 account that we got earlier, of the details of this recurring pattern of sin in Abraham's life. And in these details, I think it has some clues for us about how we deal with the recurring pattern of sin in our own life. So I want to look at that. And then I want to look at God's faithfulness to us. Even in the midst of our unfaithfulness to him, I want to be again reminded as he continues to do over and over, I'm just trying to preach the Bible to you, how God is ultimately unwaveringly faithful to us when we are unwavering or we are unfaithful to him, all right? So here's my prayer. Here's what I want us to leave with, all right? One, I want us to leave feeling challenged to deal with recurring patterns of sin in our life. I do. I want us to look at these details so that we can deal with the recurring patterns of sin in our own life. But then ultimately, I also want us to leave feeling blessed. I want us to leave feeling blessed because we do have these regular accounts of how God continues to be faithful to us. And we're going to be reminded by that tonight. All right. So that's my two goals. So we're going to wrestle with these three ways. I want us to look at three ways that we can consider our recurring patterns of sin in our own life so we can deal with them as we look at the story of Abraham. And here's what we see. All right. We see these three patterns that are here. We see these three ways to consider it. The first one is the environment of recurring sin in Abraham's life. The second is the effect of recurring sin in Abraham's life. And then the third is the essence of recurring sin in Abraham's life. So you get three E's tonight. Um, You're welcome. All right. So let's look first at the environment of Abraham's recurring sin. We see this in verses one and two. I promise I'm not going to reread the whole passage like I did last week. So bear with me. All right. Here's verses one through two. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Again, the recurring pattern. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. All right. So here's Abraham's environment as we see this relapse of sin in his own life. It's two things. First, we need to see as it, as it starts, it says, from there, all right? So we have to go back. That takes us back to Genesis 19. What happens in Genesis 19? We see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? So Abraham, what we see in Genesis 19 is he goes up to this mount and he overlooks the valley. And as he overlooks the valley, he looks at the destruction that has rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah after he's pled with God that he would allow Sodom and Gomorrah to remain 
in spite of their sin. And so we see the destruction that Abraham has just witnessed. And look, this isn't the only time that this has happened. This happens in Genesis chapter 12 too. What takes Abraham to Egypt in Genesis chapter 12 is that there's a severe famine. So when we hear that, all we think is like, oh, he was a little hungry. But what you have to think about is they're in the Middle East. There's, it's very dry there. If there is a severe famine, you have to imagine things have gotten really bad. I mean, you're talking about people that are starving to death that causes Abraham to pick up his camp and to move to Egypt under the authority of Pharaoh. And so you see these recurring accounts of just incredible destruction that Abraham has to witness in his life that leads to what we ultimately see as a sin pattern in his life. And so it doesn't stop there. You also see Abraham is on the move in both Genesis chapter 12 as well as Genesis 20. It says, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev. So we saw this in Genesis 12. He picks up his camp, they moved to Egypt. We see it again here as he moves to Gerar. And look, if you've ever moved, if you've ever had to move your house, you know that a move is jarring, right? You know that moves are not easy, especially if you're moving from one particular town across states or even internationally, moving to a different place. You have new surroundings. You have new people. You have new challenges. You experience all this. So if you put like both of these together, well, you see the environment that Abraham is dealing with here is he's dealing with incredible destruction that he's witnessed in his own life. And then he's picking up his own family, his own household. They're moving to a new place, which comes with all these new challenges. This is the environment that we see that takes place with this recurring pattern of sin in Abraham's life. And so look, what we need to see in Abraham's story story is that these patterns of sin have an environment where the recurring pattern takes place in our life and these environments matter. These environments matter. Like we must pay attention to the things that are happening in our life as well as around our life because look, they affect us. The things that are happening to you, the surroundings that you are in, And the effects that they have on you internally, look, they have an effect in the way that you respond in this life. Whether it's obedience or disobedience, your environment, it matters. So look, there's another example that we can go to that I think even gives a little bit more detail to this. So if you go and look at the story of Elijah, in Elijah's life, in 1 Kings 19, we see that Elijah has experienced something that's just really, really profound, right? So he's in, uh, he's go, he goes to one of the most wicked kings in uh, God's people's history, and he challenges the, the prophets and the priests of Baal to make a sacrifice to see which God responds, and as you see what happens in 1 Kings is he, this Elijah, as the prophet of God, one of the last that's remaining, he begins to taunt the priests of Baal. He goes and he makes these challenges to the priests of Baal. These priests cannot, they can't deliver on the promises that they make in terms of this sacrifice. So Elijah goes, he prepares his own sacrifice. God responds in an extreme measure and then what Abraham, or Elijah does is he goes and then he sacrifices, he kills, he doesn't sacrifice, he kills all of the prophets of Baal, this massive victory, 450 to one, and Elijah slays all of them. 
And after this incredible victory, which you could say that Abraham's experienced some pretty incredible victories when it comes to his own life in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20. He gets the promise in Genesis 12. In Genesis 19, we see that God listens to his prayer and he saves Lot from the destruction that happens in Sodom. Pretty big victories that happen there. What happens in Elijah's life is he hears that Queen Jezebel is coming for his life. And what does he do? He runs. He runs, he flees, and what we find in Genesis or First uh, Kings nineteen is that Elijah ends up under a tree and he's crying, he's pleading that God would just take his life. God, just take my life. Even after all the incredible things I've just witnessed you do, he pleads that God would take his life. But how does God respond to Elijah? He says, "Well, when was the last time that you slept, Elijah?" In the midst of like all that has happened in your life, you're fleeing and all the events, the great victory, the threat that's on your life, you fleeing and leaving behind one of your servants and now you're sitting under this tree in the hot, hot desert and you're pleading that I would just take your life. Look, before we get there, when's the last time you slept? And then after he lays down and he sleeps, he wakes back up and he's like, Elijah, when's the last time that you had food or drink? And so twice you see this repetition that happens in Elijah's life where God attends to the environment, the circumstances, the situation of Elijah's life. Because look, within our environment, we see the reoccurring pattern of sin that takes place because of all the things that happen to us, that happen in us, that lead to the way that we respond and disobedience in our life. And look, if this is the case for two spiritual giants like Abraham and Elijah, look, the likelihood it is, is it's probably true for you too. Look, when it comes to recurring patterns of sin in your life, you need to pay attention to like major changes that happen at your work. Are there major shifts that are taking place in your profession? And how does that affect you in the way the things that are happening around you, the things that are happening inside of you, how you respond to people in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, where you go and play, your hobbies? How does that affect your disposition? Feeling lonely. That's part of a, an environment that affects the way that you respond to people. Like if you're feeling isolated and lonely, look, that does something to you. That's an environment that affects your soul. Family conflict. Like when you feel tension within the own home, like the place that's supposed to be one of the safest spots in life for you, and it's just an upheaval because there's conflict that's taking place in your own home, look, this does something to you. It affects your soul. It affects the way that you respond and you interact with people. Look, whenever your house is falling apart, like when there's just things that are breaking constantly in your home and you're just constantly dealing with the stress of having to make the phone calls, get people to come in to give quotes, you're trying to do remodeling. Like that's one, of, if you look at like the stressors in life that often lead to divorce in a home, it's things that happen in your house to the, the place that you live. This, this is an environment that affects and breeds sin in your life. Season of ambiguity. 
Like whenever it things, seems like everything's just up in the air, you don't know the direction with your work, it feels like you don't know where this relationship is headed. Like, dude, these, the ambiguity in your life is an environment that can cultivate sin in the way that you deal with the conflict, the issues of your life. And so look, what we should see in Genesis 20, when we look at the environment that go, is going on with Abraham's life, but we also consider our own environment, it should wake us up to say, hey, we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention that whenever we have struggles with sin, look, oftentimes the environment is one of the main cultivators that pops up in our life that leads to this recurring sin pattern that's in your life. And we see this in Genesis 20, Alistair Bay kind of, he summarizes it like this. It is comparatively easy to trust in God while all is well, but in a time of disappointment, in a time of loneliness, in a time of uncertainty, in a new environment, the inconsistencies of our hearts may well be revealed. So the question is, in what environments are you most susceptible to sin? When you look back on your own life and sin struggles that you've identified in your life, how does the environment play into it? Well, in Abraham's story, we see this, that the environment, it matters, right? Like there's things, there's heavy things going on in his life, but we also see that there's an effect of recurring sin in Abram's life. And we see it in this way, but before we do that, like, look, um, Oftentimes, like, there's a voice in our head, and it tries to provide an argument to our own heart that whenever we step into sin pattern in our life, it only really affects us. It doesn't affect the people that are around us. Like, me going to the pixels on a screen, or me going to food, or me abandoning people and retreating and being a recluse, these don't affect other people. I'm the only one that suffers. But we see in this story, as well as our own life, as well as the witness of the rest of Scripture, that our own sin actually hurts other people. Here's what Romans 14.7 says, For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. What this means is the reality of our life is our sin affects other people, and this is what we see in Abraham's story. Abraham's recurring sin, look, it hurts the loved ones that are around him. It also hurts his neighbors hurts his loved ones and his neighbors. We see that Abraham's sin hurts his loved ones in the way that it affects Sarah. So look, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, when Abraham claims that, a uh, that Sarah is his sister, two things happen, all right? One, she is placed into a position where she now may have to practice infidelity. These kings take Sarah into their house as their wife, and we don't need to wrestle with what that means, right? There's an opportunity for infidelity that Abraham is placing Sarah in because of this, the decisions that he's making in this life. And then look, if she doesn't abide by it, if she doesn't go forward with it, what happens? She's placed at minimum in a position of harm, if not death. And this is all because the way that Abraham deals with his own insecurities and his own sin. Look, he's putting Sarah in these situations, these compromising situations that leads to opportunity for infidelity and her own harm. His sin affects Sarah. 
But it doesn't only affect Sarah, it also affects his neighbors. We see this with Pharaoh in Genesis 12. We also see it here with Abimelech, and we get a more detailed account. So we see severe plagues that happen to Pharaoh. Here's what happens with Abimelech, all right? So God visits Abimelech in the dream. He warns the king that he's about to die. And here's how Abimelech responds in verses 9 through 10. He says, Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me in my kingdom? You've done these things to me that should never be done. And then Abimelech also asked Abraham, what made you do this? Now look, we need to look at Abraham's response because he doesn't own up to it. He doesn't own up to his own sin. Here's how he responds in verses 11 through 13. Abraham replied, I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show, show your loyalty to me whenever or wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. And so look, here's Abraham's response. It's not really my fault, and I didn't really lie to you. That's Abraham's response here. Like... Abraham is shifting the blame in his response to Abimelech. Well, if you all weren't so wicked and there was no fear of God that was here in this place, then I wouldn't have had to respond and call Sarah my sister. It's your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault because of the way that you handle yourself, the way that you don't fear God here. It's really your fault. He even kind of moves in the direction of blaming God here. Like God's the one that called me to get up and move from my father's house. And so here's, I, I came up with this idea to call Sarah my wife because it's God that told me to go do this. And so it's kind of his fault too. But then you also see that Abraham's like, I, I didn't really lie right? It's like, I have a half, it's a half truth here of what Abraham is calling. Besides, she really is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not of my mother. And so she really is my sister, but she's only my half sister. And so he's like basically boiled down that a half truth isn't as wicked as a full out lie. But that's just, if any of us have ever experienced a half truth, you know that that's not true. I mean, Abimelech's like, that's not my experience, right? God's response to Abimelech showing up in a dream and saying that his life is threatened should show us that half-truths aren't real, right? Like they're wicked, they're dangerous. Here's, here's what F.B. Meyer has to say about half-truths. A half-truth has just enough fact in it to make it plausible and just enough deception to make it dangerous. Because what's really at the heart of a half-truth is deception and manipulation. You're not really concerned about the truth at all you're really only concerned about yourself. And look, it hurts people. Abraham is clueless to the effects of his sin, but what we need to see here for our own life is that when we sin, others suffer. When we sin, others suffer. Our, our sin does two things. It places people in compromising situations and when we don't, secondly, when we don't deal with our sin, we make someone else deal with it for us. When you don't deal with your own sin, you make somebody else deal with it for you. Let me explain, all right? So compromising situations, look, we do this all the time. You've probably experienced it in your own life because of other people's sin, but look, you do the same thing, all right? Here's compromising situations that we place people in. When we overcommit in our life, 
when you pile onto your own schedule because of your insecurities of feeling left out, what do you do? You place other people in compromising situations because now they have to live in the whirlwind of hurry and stress because of the situation you've placed them in. Look, if you... If you're over a household, if you're a mom or a dad and you've done this in your life, you've seen the effects of it in your kids. And look, it's because of your own sin problem. We do the same thing with when it's at our work. And look, if you can't follow at work, if you can't follow the direction that's given to you because of your own pride, you can't take commands that are given to you at your own work. Look, it often leaves you in a place of compromise at work. At the very worst, it could mean that you're having to bounce around from job to job because you just can't take orders, you can't have authority in your life, and it leaves those people that are in your life in a place of insecurity. Because where's the funds going to come from for us to have a house? Or where are, where are the, where's the, the money going to come from for us to make rent, for clothes, for food? All these different, You're placing somebody in a compromising situation because of your own sin issue. Or when we, we hide, right? When we're... We're, we're afraid of getting too close to somebody. And so we run and we hide. What are you doing? You're placing those that are around you in a compromising situation because now they have to deal with the effects of loneliness. Because of your recurring sin problem in your life, it affects your loved ones. But look, when we don't deal with our own sin issues, we also make other people's deal with it for us. So here's... Here's a way that we kind of experience this, right? Like when we don't own our sin, you make others do it for you. We had family in recently. Um, and anytime you get <laughs> around family, you talk about what? Other family members, right? And so we're talking about just like the funny things, the funny patterns in our family's life. And I'm just going to use myself as the example, right? So we're talking about things that are experienced by another person throughout the trajectory of their whole entire life, right? And so here's what you like hear said about these people. Well, that's just Josh for you, right? Uh, the anxiety and the worry and the, the effects of that and how we all have to live with it, that's just Josh for you. That's just who he's always been. That's who he's always going to be. And we just have to figure it out, right? Or you get like, well, we've just learned how to deal with it. Like the responses that come from Josh and the ways that we experience him whenever things get really hard or whenever like he doesn't get the response that he wants back or he gets pushed back from the family or he's called out from something, We've just learned how to, how to live with it. Like we walk on eggshells or we just avoid. Like that's causing somebody to have to deal with your sin issue because you're not dealing with it yourself. Other people have to alter the way that they live around you because you're not dealing with your sin issue. And it hurts people. It affects your relationships. It, it doesn't allow the depth that you ultimately desire in your life to get there because people have to walk on eggshells. They have to be put in compromising situations and it affects your relationships. And we see that in Abraham's life and look, we need to see it in ours too. Your recurring sin doesn't just hurt you, it hurts others as well. And so look, maybe the most loving thing that you can do for those that are in your life is deal with your recurring sin problem. Not give a gift, not try to do the five love languages, 
then maybe the most loving thing that you can do for those people that are in your life, loved ones or neighbors, is dealing with your sin problem. And thankfully, we get an idea of how to do that with the essence of Abraham's recurring sin in verse 11. We see the essence or the root, the heart of it in verse 11. Here's what it says. Abraham replied, I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. The essence of this recurring sin in Abraham's life is fear. More specifically, it's the fear of man, isn't it? Despite regular encounters with the creator of the universe, whether it be showing up in dreams, whether it be like experiences with visitors that come by his house, Abraham wilts at the fear of man, even though he's been around and in the presence of the divine. In Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham, gives him the promise. Before the chapter even ends, Abraham compromises that promise by calling Sarah his sister. Same thing happens here in Genesis 20. After Genesis 19, we see Genesis 20, the next chapter, Abraham compromises the promise by calling Sarah his sister again. And look, all because Abraham fears worldly authorities above heavenly authorities. He wilts at fear, specifically the fear of man. And so to address our sin, we must attend to the root of it. We don't get the sense that Abraham ever did this. We don't get the sense that Abraham ever went to the root issue of why this recurring pattern of sin happened in his life because later we're gonna see that Isaac does the exact same thing in his life. The same pattern that we see from Abraham twice happens in his son Isaac. And look, Isaac isn't even born yet. He's heard stories, maybe even been taught what to do in these compromising situations. And we see the same thing end up happening in Isaac's life. It doesn't seem like Abraham ever deals with this recurring pattern of sin in his life. And so look, here's the key to addressing the essence of recurring sin in your life. You don't do it alone. The key to addressing recurring sin in your life is that you invite other people in. Look at Abraham's response in verse 11, all right? So Abraham replied, I thought, me, how many other voices is Abraham consulting about the things that are going on inside of him, the things that he's experienced outside of him that are affecting him? How many other voices are brought in? We don't get the sense that there's any. None. The only voice in Abraham's life was his own, and it led to repeated sin in his life. Here's what Proverbs eleven fourteen says. Without guidance, a people will fall, but with many counselors, there is deliverance. So look, the question you have to ask is who else am I listening to? You're listening to yourself. You have voices, conversations that go on in your head and in your heart that is your voice, but what other voices have you invited into your life that are speaking into your situation, your proclivities, your struggles? What other voices have you invited in? Look, we need holy counselors in our life that help us identify and then attend to the roots of our sin. The question is, 
Who? Who have you invited in? You can't do it alone. If you look at Abraham's pattern, it's just a mirror for us to look at our own self that if we are only talking to ourself and we're not inviting other people in, you're gonna fall down, you're gonna get hurt, you're gonna fall into patterns of sin and it's ultimately gonna affect other people. Feeling encouraged? <laughs> yeah. I said that I want you to feel challenged to deal with your own sin at the beginning. I, I hope that these three E's kind of give you some spaces to think about your recurring life or your recurring patterns of sin in your life. But look, I want you to feel blessed as we leave here, all right? So we're not done, all right? Thankfully, we're not done. I want us to look, secondly, at God's preservation of the saints, all right? So look, there's this biblical teaching um, that historically has been described as the perseverance of the saints. And it says that all true believers will indeed persevere in the faith until the end of their lives. Now, here's a problem that some Bible teachers have made to this idea of the perseverance of the saints. Some argue that this puts too much emphasis on the faith of the believer and not enough on the grace of God. So here's the solution that some of these Bible teachers have come up with. Some have chosen to describe the same Bible teaching instead of the perseverance of the saints, it's the preservation of the saints. It underscores God's faithfulness to his people despite their frequent infidelities to him. And we find this true in Abraham's story tonight. So consider some of the ways that God intervenes here on Abraham's behalf, even in the midst of a recurring pattern of sin in Abraham's life. Look at the provision that we see of God. So verse three, God confronts Abimelech. Look, it's not Abraham that goes to Abimelech. He's the one that's lied about Sarah being a sister, but how do we see God respond? He confronts Abimelech on Abraham's behalf. Verse three, but God came to Abimelech in a dream and he warns him of his coming death. God's the one that steps in. God preserves the promise. We see this in verse six. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, speaking to Abimelech. I, all, I have also kept you from sinning against me. Who? God's the one. It's not, Ab it's not Abimelech that's out of a righteous fear of God that hasn't lived into sin. No, it's God that's intervened here. He hasn't allowed Abimelech to sin against him. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Look, this is all God's provision. He has not allowed Abimelech to go into Sarah so that the promise can be compromised. It's God's provision. He's, he's the one that's stepping in on Abraham's behalf. But then it continues. You see in verse 17 that God intercedes through Abraham's prayer. Look, even in the midst of Abraham shifting blame and giving half-truths, we see that God says that he, it's the only time that we see, or it's the first time that we see the word prophet used without the, within the whole entire Bible, and it's Abraham in the midst of his sin, God speaking of Abraham himself. And what do we see that happens after God intervenes? Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so that they could bear children, for the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And so look, Time and time again throughout this story, you see that God is intervening on Abraham's behalf 
so that the promise can be fulfilled. So look, we need to notice this. We need to notice a pattern here, all right? We need to notice that it's no coincidence that Moses highlights these two stories right after the promise is given in Genesis chapter 12 and right before it's fulfilled in Genesis chapter 21. Look, here's what God is trying to point out to us, all right? From beginning to end, the one that brings the promise to fulfillment is not Abraham, not morally or physically. The one that brings about the promise is God himself. God is the one that issues the promise. He's the one that brings it to fulfillment. If it was on Abraham's shoulders, it never would have happened. Never would have come to fruition. And here's what we need to see. The same thing is true of our salvation as well. The way that God has intervened in Abraham's life from beginning to end, bringing the promise to fulfillment, all on God's shoulders, none on Abraham's shoulders because he would have stumbled and fallen. It's the same way with us and our belief in Jesus and the faith and the grace of Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Look, it's always been that God is the one that starts it and he's the one that brings it to completion and fulfillment in your life. And the whole Bible gives witness to this. Let me show it to you. What we see in Philippians chapter 1 is that God the Father starts your salvation and he also finishes it. Here's what he says in verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning when Jesus comes back, God's the one that has from beginning to end brought and completed your salvation where you get to stand in right relationship with him. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see that Jesus pioneers and then he perfects your faith. Here's what verse 2 says. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author or the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the one that gives you salvation. He's the one that was the author of it because, look, he came down from heaven put on human flesh, lived perfectly in your place, died in your place on the cross, rose from the grave so that you can have his right standing with God. He's the one that gifts you with faith. He's the one that keeps you in the faith and he's the one that perfects it. And then you see that the Holy Spirit seals it in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. And listen to this, when you believed and you were marked in him with the seal, which is the promised Holy Spirit. The seal is like the, the wax with a seal that is imprinted on it. It seals the envelope. That's what God does with the Holy Spirit in you. You have inside of it God's written hand note that your sin has been paid for. And what seals the whole entire thing is he gives you the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of you. And what we see is that no one can pluck you out of God's hand because Ephesians chapter 2 says that with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are now connected to Jesus who's seated at the right hand of God. So there's nobody and there's nothing that can pluck you out of God's hands. Look, he starts your salvation. He continues to keep you going through it because of his faithfulness to you. And then he brings it to completion when Jesus comes back again. Nothing that you have done, everything that he's done on your behalf. And the story is our reminder that everything that God does for Abraham, he does for us. 
So look, there's a quote by um, one of the office cast, I couldn't remember which office cast member that said this, but they're stating it regarding Steve Carell and just his importance to the show, all right? And so here's how the quote goes. If you look on the insides of Steve's jacket, the one that he wears in the office, right? You'll find the nail marks of the cast clinging to Steve's back as he carried us through the show. Meaning like Steve was so gifted, his humor was so great. He's the one that moved forward these lesser than cast members as well as the plot of the story forward. They were just trying to keep a hold of Steve so they could be dragged forward in his success. Friends, I'm afraid that most of us view our faith in Jesus that exact same way. That Jesus has done everything for you and now that you have entered into a relationship with him, your responsibility is just to claw your, your nails into Jesus' back so he can pull you through life. But what we have to recognize is that, that the witness of the Bible speaks something completely different. That it's not your grip on Jesus that gets you into salvation or into eternal life with him in the presence of God whenever Jesus comes back. No, it's Jesus' grip on you. Your place in life is not sinking your nails into the back of Jesus, just hoping that you can hang on until you take your last breath and you go and you meet Jesus face to face. Your role is that you climb up into the arms of the heavenly father because you've been given access through Jesus Christ on your behalf and that's your place. And he's the one that keeps you there that his arms are wrapped around you, that you're engulfed by the love and the righteousness of God because of everything that Jesus has done for you and you cannot get out of his grip and there's nothing that can take you from his grip and that is your place that you live from and life is this place in the bosom of your father and he keeps you there until he, you go see him face to face. So breathe in this life of blessing that you have in Christ Jesus. It's not anything that I have to do. The only thing that I bring to the table is my own sin, my recurring patterns of sin. I place it at the feet of Jesus. He forgives me. I am embraced by a loving father and I live in his arms until the end of my time. Let's end with this, all right? Um, there's a, a Bible preacher, teacher named Michael Horton, and he shares a story about what we've wrestled with tonight, like the struggle of sin as well as God's preservation of saints in this life. And in this story, he recounts just the burden that he feels about sin in his own life and just the questions and the wrestlings, what does God's part in my salvation look like? And here's what he says. He says, I remember how as a child I used to ask Jesus into my heart over and over again. Any of you been there? <laughs> Each time I intended to make absolutely certain that I was saved. Why do we do that? Why is it that in some churches we see the same people walking down the aisle week after week? Anybody witness that growing up in the church? Perhaps it is because we are looking to something we can do or have done to secure the kind of assurance that we need. But listen to this, but we can't trust our feelings or our abilities of either will or effort 
So we're left with having to trust in the ability of God. And here's what the Bible says, that he's able to keep you from falling. And that's the place that you rest. Look, because you're secure in Christ, you can do both of addressing your recurring sin problems. You can be honest about the environments of sin that you have a proclivity towards recurring sin and patterns of sin in your life. You can be honest about the effects of your sin on the loved ones and the neighbors that are around you. You can be honest about the essence of your sin, the heart problems, the root heart problems of sin that are in your life that Abraham didn't address, but we need to address. And you can address them through the strength of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. You can do that while also at the same time resting in God's preservation of you. The witness of the Bible speaks to this, that he's the one that does all of the saving. You don't do anything. And in Christ's grip, he keeps you. It's not your grip on him that matters, but his grip that rests on you. And so look, feel challenged to go deal with your sin. But in the midst of the challenge, recognize the blessed gift of preservation that God has placed on your life. Nothing can rip you out of his hands. Let's pray.